Good morning, church. My name is Claire, and today's Old Testament reading is found in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 2. The Song of the Vineyard. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it it yielded only bad fruit. Good morning, everyone. My name is Sylvia, and I will be reading from Mark chapter 12 from verse 1 through 17. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the winepress, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others, some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the the owner of the vineyard do? He will come, will he come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others? Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. Then they brought the coin, and he asked them, Whose image is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Thank you, Claire. Thank you, Sylvia. Um, this This is an important series. So let me explain to you where we've been, where we're going up to Easter, and then where we're going after Easter, so you can understand that there's a plan to what we're doing. So we have been in the series of Devoted, and looking at what it takes for you and I to be fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. We've talked about how lies get in, how we need to identify those, curate those, find truth, focus on truth, and and just realize that the evil one... Uh, yes, he wants us to, to, to literally be on a destructive path, but his, his, his 
biggest tool is to get us to believe a lie because once we believe a lie, we can go into all kinds of destructive practices and end up doing all kinds of things that we would never desire to do otherwise. And so the the series has been about us identifying the ways in which we need to hold on to what is true with the understanding that there's nobody, myself included, in this room that will ever listen to this that is um, immune to believing a lie. We all have the potential to believe a lie, and we all have potential to speak lies. And so after prayer week, we've now transitioned to what was Jesus devoted to get across before he went to the cross? So he's now in a series, we're now in a series of events that Jesus was looking to make very clear to his followers and to the larger Jewish culture, the nation of Israel, the temple leaders. Like Jesus on this last week, was giving himself fully with his followers in tow, sometimes taking them to the side and say, you didn't understand that, let me explain it to you. Other times it was so clear they didn't need explanation. But he is in a a, a time of moving up to what we would call Good Friday, the crucifixion. And he is trying to get across what I believe are key points, not just for the followers of that generation, but key things that I would say, do we believe? Do we really still hold true? Because even if we've been going to church for a long time, the majority of us are thankful that Jesus died to forgive us of our sins so that we can spend eternity with him in what we would refer to as a paradise called heaven. But as we look at this passage leading up to the cross, the kingdom of God is heavy in Jesus's teachings. He's talking to them about the way that people live on earth until he returns. And he's giving some forecasting of where that is all going and where it is heading. And so last Sunday, we talked about Jesus entering into the temple. He cursed a fig tree on the way in. He spent the day turning over tables, ended the day by giving a teaching to all the people that he had just spent the day turning the tables over. And then he goes back to the fig tree, walks by it with the disciples. The disciples see it withered and it, and it, and it bookends the teaching where last week I was talking to us about the fact that Jesus wanted the nation of Israel to stay on its purpose. The purpose of the nation of Israel was to be generous and in inviting people to their God. And somehow they had shifted to being wanting to be the powerful nation and they weren't willing to be the nation that that served the other nations around them. And they had lost their way. And so the, the purpose of last week was, have we lost our way? Are we still generous and are we willing? And this is key to see that Jesus is the king of our lives as well. And that's where a lot of people in Christianity have kind of lost the king talk. And so between now and Good Friday, you're going to hear me talk about Jesus being king because this is what the text is teaching us. And that might be something that for some of you might be a little bit uncomfortable because Jesus is savior where Paul and the early church writers, which we don't have time to look at this morning, they referred to Jesus more as Lord than they did Savior in the early church letters. He was referred to on many occasions as Savior, but multiple times more was he referred to as their Lord, which is another way of saying he's the king of our kingdom. And because we live in a democracy, we want our opinion to matter. But in a monarchy, whose opinion matters? 
the king and the king only, or if it's a queen, the queen only. But yet, for us, in our faith, we want to be able to negotiate with our king. We want to be able to say, I know Jesus, but for me, this would be better. And we do that all the time. And sometimes Jesus entertains that where we're going through something like the Psalms say, Lord, this is the yearning of my heart. I see this triumphing over me. And we, he, he's there for us to go to and share our hearts with. And, and I believe he's loving and compassionate and kind towards us. And so this week, as we step into this, these two stories, the Isaiah 5 story is the overarching understanding that the people would have had listening the Mark chapter 12 passage is two stories that took place back to back in the same day, following the religious leaders coming to Jesus and saying, under what authority did you just turn over tables all day long? And he gave them the passage out of Isaiah where he's like, no, look, I am the true king of Israel and I have authority over the temple. And so now we're following into this. So Shakespeare Anybody like Shakespeare? All right, a few of you. What are the three primary ways in which um, uh, Shakespeare kind of framed his plays? Comedies, tragedies, and history, right? So there's history. So some of you are like, wow, Ellis, I didn't know you know that. You can Google anything nowadays, all right? So I don't want you to think I'm a Shakespeare expert. I was considering this because when you look at Mark chapter 12, it also sounds like it's starting out like Mark chapter 4. Because when Jesus stepped into the temple and he starts this process, many of the people that heard him in Mark 4 are still now with him in Mark 12. But the parable in Mark 4 would be what I would say would be more like a Shakespearean comedy. Because in a Shakespearean comedy, at the very end, there's, the, the, there's this usually a, a wedding or a celebration or the hero is, 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 is celebrated. But in a tragedy, usually the person you want to succeed ends in death or some sort of destruction, according to what I read about Shakespeare. So, um, but the first parable of Jesus in Mark chapter 4 was a story that also had to do with farming and seeds in different soils. You guys know that story? There's a sower going around and he's casting seed and some of it falls on this type of soil. Some of it falls on that type of soil. Some of it falls in rocky, weedy areas. But in the end of the parable, there is some of the seeds that falls into fertile soil and produces what? A great harvest. A great harvest. And so that's more of a victorious story, right? This wonderful parable. But here in this Mark chapter 12, we're going to find that it's not the same. So what we have here is a farmer that has a vineyard, which goes back to the Isaiah 5. The imagery of Israel being that vineyard that God had blessed to be seed bearing in all of the world. And that would have been the understanding. But now the owner is at a distance. The owner seems to be somewhere a little bit farther off. And he's sending these servants, which were representation of the prophets. And they're coming one by one by one to the people that are tending the soil of these vineyards. And they are being rejected and they're being cast away. Some of them are being killed. And then finally, like a great Shakespearean play, a twist. The owner comes and visits them through his son, 
thinking, oh, for surely they won't kill him. Surely they won't reject him. But what we find at the end of this particular parable is that this terrible picture of what happens if the people of God persistently reject the purpose for which God has called them. So you see these leaders that are now interacting with Jesus in the temple and we're now introduced to two denominations. Some of you are like, denominations? Did you not hear them say Pharisees and Herodians? You're like, oh, wow, even in the first century Judaism, they had denominations. Let me just tell you, for all of human history, we look to divide. Even We can have the same God, but yet we decide to have different denominations. So there were zealots, there were Pharisees, there were Herodians. There were these different sects within the um, Jewish culture. And they're now teaming up because they knew that Jesus was saying some, some things and they are wanting to be united against him. Which, there are a lot of people that claim Christianity in our American politics today. And no matter whether they are on one side of the aisle or on the other side of the aisle, they talk about how Jesus would be with them. Can I just say this? This is not in my sermon notes. But I just want this to bring peace to us in the church. If Jesus was physically present in our capital, our Senate and House would be united against him. If we want to bring peace to our government politics, they wouldn't like what Jesus would have to say. We're using his name in vain so many times. And this is what we're finding here. Jesus walks into a place where they should have seen the signs. They should have seen the wonders. They should have heard the teachings. They would have had the, the, the stirring in their hearts to know that it was true. But yet they're looking and they're plotting for ways to go at him. So Jesus has taken the story from Isaiah 5 and told it in a different way. This owner, this field and all of this. And, and now at last, God was sending the one who was doing the job of a prophet, but was himself more than a prophet. It was his beloved son. This is who Jesus is now sending in. And if we were tracking through all of Mark's gospel, he had already settled. Jesus is teaching had already settled on the fact that he was the true Messiah. He was the true leader of Israel, the true leader of, of now us post-resurrection and ascension. And so Jesus had the authority to do everything that he was doing, but yet they did not want to give up their control. So these religious leaders had the power. They had control. They wanted it to still be about they were being exposed to the truth of God. And, and rather than making room for him, they are looking to reject him. So this parable coming out of the teaching from last week, the, the turning over of the tables, the cursing of the fig tree, the interaction with the Pharisees about what authority do you have? This parable is now reinforcing what they questioned him about the other day. And I'm saying, why is Jesus being so redundant? And I honestly believe it's because the human heart is one stubborn muscle. Many of us, when we get it in our head and it becomes the desire of our heart, you could be fully wrong, but you think you're fully right. And it doesn't matter what people say to you. And that's the danger. And that's one of the reasons why the church is so important so that we can come in and say, as brothers and sisters, 
Christ. What condition is my heart in? Because I know my heart is prone to wander. My heart is prone to be stubborn. I'm prone to believe things that aren't true. And if we're not careful, we could then turn on Jesus himself and we would never think that we would do so. And so I believe that part of the reason why Jesus is going through these teachings is because he knows what's getting ready to happen with his disciples at the crucifixion. Like they're getting ready to scatter. Like they're getting ready to hide when they should have been the ones to stand up saying, we know what this day means, but they were overcome with the circumstances. And I don't want us to be overcome in our generation. I want us to hold on to what is true. So instead of this particular story being a happy ending. This particular first story ends with a tragedy faced with someone behaving with an authority, which has the word royal stamped all over it. The authorities must either submit or do it there or do it his way. So thinking on this, I want you to understand this next story about the coin coming out of the parable about the the, the vineyard and the servants coming and being rejected and then the son finally being killed has everything to do with the fact that they had to make a choice. Either I am going to submit to this man that obviously thinks he's the true king of Israel or I've got to figure out a way to get rid of him. So they took a break, it says. They left Jesus alone for a little while. It was not inactivity. They didn't go and tune in to Jerusalem CNN. They were planning. They were planning. How can we get rid of him? Because the crowd likes him. He's gaining influence. Some of them are actually believing that he's the king. And so they come back with this coin idea. And it's brilliant. Because what they needed to do was to have Jesus say something public that either the crowd would want to stone him or the Romans would want to kill him. And that's why Jesus is so measured in his words. And I believe it's really important for us to consider this because this isn't just about the separation of church and state. This isn't about the, the taxes and, and how ridiculously high the taxes were in the first century. We think our taxes are bad. They were probably taxed over 50 to 60% in that generation. Enormous burden. So if they could get Jesus to talk about taxes in the wrong way, the crowd was going to be like, what? Taxes? Jesus? You know, throwing their computers at them. You know, you do your own taxes, whatever it is. Like they would have turned on Jesus. But now they're, they're, they're trying to get Rome to get involved because they want Jesus to say something bad that they can say, look, this is, this is um, subversive. He's trying to rally people against Rome so that Rome would then have them killed. And so there's so many subtleties in this for Jesus to say, show me a coin. Let's look at it. Let's touch it. Let's see it. Because to a Jew, there were so many other things that would have been at play here. And if we were thinking about it, Israel for a long time only had during the Maccabean period of time, which was about 100 years before Jesus, where they weren't controlled by another nation. So from Babylon to Persia, all the like they were all paying taxes to another government except for one short period of time. And during that Maccabean period of time, which was around the year 163 B.C., 63 B.C., they, were, they, they weren't independent. 
And so the Romans ruled, so the Romans taxed, right? That's what they did. And so let me start out by talking about the coin real quick. Jews are forbidden to make graven images. Don't make any images, right? And so I want you guys to understand, they would have still been taking that very seriously. No carved images. There's argument in Jewish culture that if it was of nature, they could have an image of it. If it could be a piece of fruit or a tree or a flower, there was, it's like kids could carve or, or learn to do art with something that was from God's creation. But people were an absolute no-no. And so by Jesus asking these religious leaders, do you have a denarii? Do you have a coin? Number one, whoever reached in their pocket and took it out, Jesus was already making a huge statement. And so somebody presented it to Jesus with, on the front side, the head of um, Tiberius. And on it, it said this, Augustus Tiberius, the son of the divine Augustus, which would have been the son of God. And on the other side, over top of the coin, written in the language of Rome at that day, was the word high priest. So could it not have been a double-edged dagger to the Jewish culture? Could they have been even more intentional to speak directly to the God of Israel by putting the graven image of one of their Caesars on it saying, this is the son of God. And on the other side saying, oh, and by the way, he's also the high priest of our national religion. And now a Jewish, a Jewish religious leader is holding that in their hand, a graven image and somebody else that declares that they're the God of the known world at that particular time. So Mark's readers would have been understanding that more so than we would. But here it isn't about a question of politics and religion. It's about who has our heart. Who are we really wanting to submit to? Because if we went back to Mark chapter 3 and verse 6, the Pharisees and the Herodians tagged up on Jesus there too. So now, since Mark chapter 3, they've been having public, private, behind doors, courtyards, meetings because they want to get rid of him. We're now in Mark chapter 12. These same two groups have been conspiring since Mark chapter 3 to get rid of them, and they are now presenting a coin with a graven image on it. There's so much in that. But Jesus's response is brilliant. Because if Jesus supported the tax of Rome, he was going to alienate his message from the crowd. I mentioned that. But if Jesus denounces the tax, Pontius Pilate would have had reason to kill him publicly. So Jesus was all about a different kind of revolt. Jesus wasn't wanting there to be a violent revolt. He wasn't wanting to expose them for just being an idiot. He was exposing them for the fact that they were supposed to have given their heart to God and they hadn't. And so there's three things that I think is important about this particular coin story. And I think I want to separate them into three different categories for a reason. So the first category is this, is give Caesar what belongs to Caesar. And it can be taken, of course, of saying, yes, pay the tax. But without Jesus saying, yes, submit to your Roman masters, he's just like, look, give them whatever they want. 
It actually has their image on it. So if they claim it, give it back. No control over you. It's just the thing. And, and that's a simple, easy answer. I don't think the Pharisees and the Rhodians were expecting that. Then the second thing was it's, it nicely echoes a Maccabean slogan for when they were a free people. And the slogan went like this, give the pagans what they deserve, or it could have been translated, pay back Gentiles back in their own coin. And it could be taken, um, it's almost like a, a coded revolutionary slogan, but it wasn't something that would have been defiant towards Rome. So I think Jesus is articulating his words here masterfully. But in the context, it doesn't leave Jesus open to a direct charge of leading a revolt against Rome. He's just reminding the people that if they give you money, then give it back. But yet they wanted Jesus to take a violent position. So the third is this. The command to give God whatever belongs to God opens up all kinds of further questions. And this is what I believe is the most important for us. Because we've got to be devoted to something. And I believe we need to be devoted to the fact that we bear the image of the creator. We, no matter what our skin tone, what our education, where we're from, what continent we're from, we bear the image of God. So whose are we? If his image is on us, then whose are we? We are the father in heavens. That's who we are. And so much about what was happening in the first century and so much about what's happening in our century is about divisions and who's better and who, who should be serving who. And there's, there's just not this desire for us to be in it together. It's this, I need to get my mentality. And what God is saying is, is you bear the image of me. You bear the image of me. You bear the image of me. You bear the image. And I want all of you as my own. You're like, wow, I didn't realize all that was in this particular passage about a coin. But he did not mean, which I've heard this passage so many times, he did not mean that this was to divide the human life into uh, the world of, well, this is my religious life and this is my political life. Because Jesus being king is over both. If anything, he came down to shut down both of those in our heart so that we actually go according to his ways and his rule and his, and his, and his, his desire for the world. But those who follow Jesus often have to speak and act in ways which the surrounding culture won't understand and won't like. I talked about this briefly last week. It's going to get Jesus put on a cross. And I have to tell you, church, if we follow Jesus as our Lord, there might be some crosses that we're going to go to as well. People will not like what we have to say when we speak truth to power. When we speak truth to those that think they have something, they are not going to want to say, oh, Jesus really is the one that has power. Let me serve him. No, they're going to do what the religious leaders were doing in that generation. They're going to want to hold on to it. And in order for them to hold on to it, their sinful desires are going to lead to all kinds of worldly practice. And before long, you and I are going to be in danger of their anger or their their evil schemes because they are following the lies of their father, the, the devil, which we talked about several weeks ago. And so we as a church need to understand that the spirit of God that was on Jesus is with us to help us. 
But Jesus is declaring over and over again through Mark 11 and Mark chapter 12. He's like, I want your eyes to be open. I want the veil to be pulled back. I am your rightful king. You need me to be your king. I can lead you. And matter of fact, he's getting ready to show what leadership really looks like. He's getting ready to show that in in the next couple of chapters. But I love how in this particular text, for those of you that are feeling out of place, for those of you that really are trying to follow Jesus and the world just doesn't seem to like you, did you catch that? When the builder rejects a stone, sometimes it becomes, um, it is designed to be the capstone. So all around the temple grounds, this beautiful building that had been built, some of the stones were like 20 feet deep and like 20, like 40 feet wide, like long. It's like these were massive stones. But over the entranceways were some very unique looking stones because they didn't fit in the structure of the walls. And the, literally the builder would reject them when they were building the structure. But then when they would stand around and look at the finished wall, they're like, wow, that rock actually would look good as a capstone on that wall. So I want to take that stone and make it in a position of honor. And so, church, I just want to tell you this. If we're faithful to Jesus Christ, it may look like you're being rejected. It may look like you don't fit, but it is going to end up becoming something for you and I that is going to be beyond our wildest imaginations. He is going to set us in a special place that is going to be uniquely designed for us, that I believe he's going to draw people to him through it by looking at us. And I just don't want us to get weary following our king, following our Lord. But we have to put effort in to follow him because if you're following somebody, that means they're going somewhere. I don't, we don't follow Jesus like on social media. That's not what this passage is about. Like Jesus isn't connected to the World Wide Web. Like the only way we can follow him is if we see him. Like if you close your eyes too long, you're like, where'd he go? Because he's moving. He's got somewhere to be and he wants us to be there with him. And I believe that Jesus wants us to be devoted to him as our king. And that's what's happening here in Mark chapter 11 and 12. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much for the gift of Jesus. But Father, I'm thinking of just this one sentence prayer that I um, put at the end of my notes right now. God, would you grant us wisdom to see to the heart of things and to give ourselves wholly to our true God and King. Father, would you help us to see to the heart of things that we wouldn't be persuaded by talk, good talk, creative talk, persuasive talk, but that we would be able to see through it and be able to see you And be able to follow after you, our God and our King. So, Father, as we're getting ready for Easter as a church, would you continue to show us people in our lives that you're opening up for us to be light? We want to fulfill our purpose, and that purpose is to be light. So, Father, would you allow our light to shine brightly? Father, would you give us confidence to invite people to you, to Jesus. 
Father, could we use even the gatherings of our time together to be a place where people could come and see that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life? Help us, Father, to to walk in that together. So, Lord, give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. We don't want to be misled. We want to follow Jesus. And when when our thinking is out of line with his, Lord, would you help us rewire our thinking? So, Lord, would you allow the image of Jesus to be obvious on all the people we come in contact with this week? Would we love them because we see you? No matter where they are or where they're from. But we want to love like Jesus. We want to be known for that love. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to um, get ready for our, the Lord's table together. So for those of you that grabbed it on the way in, would you uh, pull those out if you need them? If you'll just uh, wave at Andre, he'll be happy to um, bring you one. Uh, that, uh, that was a great wave. I, uh, I appreciate that. That's, uh, we need to, we're going to crank that wave out next time we sing. Um, the, uh, again, I'm... I'm thankful that we've been able to gather more frequently and in many ways safer. Um, But we are going to be bringing back some more Sunday brunches so that we can be together for an extended period of time. So just know that those are coming very quickly, and I'm excited about that opportunity. We want to be safe, but we also, we need to be together. If presence wasn't important, then why was God showing up as Emmanuel, God with us? Presence is important. And I say that to you online, and I say that to those of us that are in the room together. We need to be together, and we need to be together in truth. It doesn't do us any good to be together in lies. We need to be together in truth, and we want to, we want to focus on that as best we can. And so would you stand with me as we take this together? I want to just stand out of uh, just the awe and the wonder of what God has done for us. I feel like it deserves us changing our posture. So if you could remove the wafer from the bottom of the cup. And uh, if, you're, if you're, sometimes I can do it, sometimes I can't, but it says he broke the bread. So if you can snap that cracker in your hand without making too much of a mess, I think that's uh, a good way for us to remember what Christ went through. But I also think it's a good reminder to us of what we might go through for other people. And so would you say this out loud together with me? This is his body broken for you. Let's do this in remembrance of him. And when Jesus passed the cup around, he told his disciples, look, this is my blood that's shed for the forgiveness of sins. Their sins, our sins, and we need, to, we need to be reminded of this, church. I just want you to hear this. Our sins have been forgiven. Um, that's how much God loves us. He's forgiven us. But there's, we need to be reminded, but there are a lot of people out there that don't know that. They don't know that Jesus died for them. They don't know that, that, that his blood covers them. So we practice saying this out loud here so that it, it freely flows off of our tongue. So that we can start saying it to people outside of this room. 
because we're inviting them to new life in Jesus Christ because Jesus paid it all. And, uh, and I want us to continue to do that. So let's announce this over one another as a reminder of what is true. Together, this is his blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Let's do this in remembrance of him. And then let's join in to the tradition, the declaring of the mystery of our faith. Um, if we could do that together, it's on the, it should be on the screen for us, I believe. Is, yes, there we go. Three simple phrases together all at one time. Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Um, I'm going to get ready to do our benediction, but I do want to remind you to throw those dates and times on uh, from Monday, Thursday, all the way through Easter Sunday, sunrise service, Good Friday gathering. I would love for us to spend as much time together that week as we possibly can. Um, but I also want you guys, if you're on social media, um, we are going to be putting some things through our church, Instagram, Facebook. Um, uh, and if you go and friend it or join into it. It helps us as we try to get um, some invitations out. I don't know if you've noticed this in the community, but a lot of houses have sold in the recent weeks in and around our communities, even in the condo buildings. And there are a lot of new people in Baltimore that are going to be looking for a church home. And our activity together on social media will help us begin to let people know that there's a church in the community available to them. But the best thing for you to do is to greet people. I'm just going to give you a quick example. The other day I was bringing in my every two weeks recycling now. I, we can't recycle every week, but every two weeks. And I was pulling my can in just as I saw a car door open on a home that had just sold on our street. And come to find out there's a young lady that doesn't know anybody in Baltimore that just moved in catty corner to my garage in the back of my house and had a wonderful conversation to the point where her final words to me were, thank you so much for talking to me. I just, let's, let's just, let's, let's bring light to somebody by sharing just a simple conversation and you'll know it. Your the Holy Spirit is going to be all over you. You're going to be like, should I talk to him? Should I not? And you're, and the Holy Spirit's like, yes. And you're going to be like, well, I'm in a hurry. And he's like, no, you're not. So, um, take your time, greet somebody, Invite them to your home. Invite them to um, be a part of this together. So here's our benediction. Could you extend hands towards one another? If you're with somebody that you're already touching, you can touch them. But if, uh, if you're not, then... Um, but as we go from here today, may we actually believe that Jesus is king. Let's just not know it. Let's believe it. And if we believe it, let's live in the hope that things are going to be different. His will, his way will take control over all the forces that are at work against it. It's the winning kingdom and uh, we get to be a part of it.